0: We're going to be reading again verses 21 through 26. About five weeks ago, I told you that this was about the most densely compacted paragraph in all of the Bible. Most commentators feel that this is the, you might say, the penultimate paragraph in all of scripture. One commentator says this is the most important paragraph that's ever been written, and it's rich, and there's a lot of information in it. I think this week we'll conclude our consideration of this paragraph, but I want to read it to you. And as I read it to you, There are a couple things I want to point out to you as we're reading it together. You're going to see at the very beginning of the passage this morning, we're going to be focusing on verses 25 and 26. But as we read it and we start, we'll notice that there's a reference right from the beginning to the righteousness of God. Take note as you're reading through it that what is being referred to in terms of the righteousness of God at the very beginning of this paragraph is not the same thing that's being referred to In the righteousness of God that you see at the end of the paragraph. But there is a connection between the two of them that we'll talk about this morning. So let me read it to you. Starting in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. For there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forward as a propitiation by his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our sermon title this morning is going to be the forbearance of a just God. We're in verses 25 and 26 and I want you to see these statements here. To demonstrate his righteousness and again... In verse 26, to demonstrate his righteousness. And again, in verse 26, that he might be just. These declarations of God's righteousness are, in a sense, a focus upon the righteousness of God that is distinct and different from the focus that's on the righteousness of God at the beginning of this paragraph in verses 21. The cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately what's being discussed in this paragraph. Although it's not named, that is what is being identified. The work that God has provided in the cross of Jesus Christ. And in that cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, a broad spectrum of the attributes of God can be found. If you took time to think about it and consider it, I think all of the attributes of God could be identified in the work that God accomplished for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. But certainly there we see God's holiness. And certainly there we see God's just wrath being poured out upon sin. And at the same time, we see God's love and we see God's mercy and we see God's grace. And we see the wisdom of God opening up before us in a way that we can grasp and understand. We see in the cross the righteous requirements that God has given us in his law. Also, we see the nature of God's own righteousness presented to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so again, in Romans 3.21, where it says, The righteousness of God has been revealed. It's emphasizing a certain aspect of God's righteousness. It's the same righteousness that's referred to in Romans 1.17. And this is what's began Paul's conversation up to this point in time. In Romans 1.17, again, Paul says, The righteousness of God is revealed. And now he's going to describe, and he's going to be putting forward, how it is that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. In the cross of Jesus Christ. It's revealed in the way that God has worked to redeem us and save us. How it is that God can righteous the unrighteous and justify the unjust. And God can still do it in a righteous and just way. That's what the cross reveals to us. This is what we said some time ago. I want you to listen to this. This is a copy and paste from a sermon that was preached about five months ago. On this very idea of the righteousness of God that is presented to us in the first part of this paragraph. And it's important that you hold this and understand this because it will then help us understand this second expression of the righteousness of God that we see at the end of this paragraph. So let me read to you this quote. It tells us what this revealed righteousness of God is that speaks of in Romans 1.17 and that we see here in Romans 3.21. The righteousness of God here is the way in which God provides salvation to sinners without compromising His holy standards. And here's how God does it. God righteously exacts a payment for all our sins, but he exacts it upon the sinless man, Jesus Christ, who is also in very nature the righteous God. Every sin, every broken law must be punished. Not one broken law is ignored or winked at in the salvation that God provides for us. All of it is righteously paid for. Every part of the penalty is enacted, but it was enacted upon the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross in our place. And then this righteous salvation went further than just giving us a righteous forgiveness. It brings us before a holy and righteous God, and it gives to us an everlasting standing before that God. God not only provides righteously the means by which we're forgiven by bearing our sins in our place, But then God makes us righteous by giving to us and crediting to us the unrighteous, unrighteous sinners, the righteousness of the sinless Lord Jesus. And so God's salvation brings us to the righteousness that God requires and that only God can provide. And so when Paul writes in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. And when Paul writes in Romans 3.21, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed... He's referring to this great and wonderful act of God in which he met all the requirements of our sin and all the requirements of his judgment upon that sin, but he met it in Jesus Christ. And then he also, in order for us to come before God, we didn't just have to be a blank slate. We had to come before God in righteousness. And so God then poured out and covered us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we might be in his presence. So when it speaks in those passages of the righteousness of God revealed, It's speaking of the righteous way in which God brings us into righteousness or the righteous way in which God saves us, redeems us to himself. However, that is not what's being spoken of and denoted in the last half of this paragraph in verses 25 and 26. There, it's not God's righteous way of saving us that is being brought before us, but it's the way in which God acts according to his righteousness. In other words, it's saying, This way that God has saved us only goes to prove that God always acts in a righteous way. God always acts in a way that is true to himself. So what we're being told by Paul now is that what God did for us in providing us a salvation proves or demonstrates that God always acts in appropriate ways to his own righteous character. That what God does is in accord with who God is. In other words... The matter that Paul is addressing in verses 25 and 26 is this. God has vindicated himself in his acts and what he's done. He's demonstrated that he's righteous, that he's just in everything he's done. And this is what we're going to consider this morning. And we're going to consider how Paul sees that vindication of God's righteousness being demonstrated to us in the cross. And the first thing I just want you to note this is, we should be able to identify with this desire of God to be vindicated. Paul is actually saying God has demonstrated this. The word you might have in your translation is God has proven his righteousness. God has proven his righteousness and you should be able as individuals to identify with this desire of God to be vindicated. If you pick up the Psalms and you go through the Psalms, you'll see at least on four different occasions that the Psalmist will pray, God vindicate me. Vindicate me from those who seek my destruction. Vindicate me from those who are hurling lies about me. In Psalm 26, verse 1, David prays this. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. There's not a person here who hasn't at one point in time over some matter desired that when they were unjustly accused or when they were misunderstood desired that on some ground in some way... They would be vindicated. We might think it's an unimportant thing, but the Lord here actually includes a testament of this human desire in the prayers that are recorded in the book of Psalms. He allows for it. He actually, in a sense, encourages it. He says, in a sense, this is a proper and right way and a right desire. God, vindicate me. God, prove the justice that I've done or the way in which I've acted. Now look at Because we're human, we distort what it is we want to be vindicated. We don't always see the error of our ways. We somehow tell the story and the narrative in a way that prefers ourselves and puts ourselves in the best position, and and actually this... Desire to be vindicated and to be proven right can be distorted into a pure evil. It can be distorted into a self-exalting way in which we lord over other people. Or it can be distorted into some unreasonable need for us to be constantly affirmed, right? Or it can be expressed in a person who is sulky and self-pitying because nobody appreciates me. And it can be twisted in terrible ways. But just note this. That somewhere in the confused psychology of your life that seeks affirmation or feels insecure or longs for recognition or feels that you've been misunderstood, somewhere underneath that is a note of the divine that God has created us with the desire for vindication and the desire that what is right and true might shine through in it. It's not wrong to want not to be thought of wrongly, right? Right? <laughs> It's not wrong to want an unjust conclusion about yourself to be reversed and to be vindicated. God is the same way. And history is moving towards a moment when all things in all of creation will acknowledge and will profess that he has done all things well. That he's done everything good. And God will be vindicated before all of his creations. He has acted, we'll recognize one day, in supreme wisdom and in perfect justice in everything that he's done. The accusation of the unbeliever is something like, how could a good God, etc., etc., etc. How could a powerful and loving God allow blah, 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 blah. Well, listen, God is going to answer those questions. He doesn't deflect them. They're not meaningless to him. God will vindicate himself. And what Paul is saying here is, God has vindicated himself at the cross. To reveal how it is that a loving God can withhold judgment. And how it is that God, a loving God can allow catastrophe. And he brings us back to the cross of Jesus Christ and says here. God proves is the word. Demonstrates. Vindicates his own righteousness. So in our passage. Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit basically tells us this. God's saving work. God's way of providing salvation. Proves. That God's way with humans throughout human history is just and was just. Always righteous and all that he's done. Here's the second thing. You should want God's justice to be vindicated. You should want the righteousness of God to be demonstrated and proven. The chaos that is in our life is the result of injustice. It's the imbalance that is caused by the distortion of sin away from the right way of life and in the middle of this imbalance, and in the middle of this wobbling world, our basic instinct is to plea for justice. It's set within our very natures. A little child is born. This is true. One of the first compound, complex sentences that any child will speak, or at least think is, that's not fair, right? It's been heard in the backseat of almost every car that's ever driven across country. That's not fair. It's And it's when you've been pouring out the cereal bowl or when you've been dishing out the ice cream. That's not fair, right? Someone's going to cry. It is in the instinct of human nature and it rises up shortly after a child begins to express tender affections and love. The next thing it shows, it has a tender affection and love for justice, or at least it's perception of justice. Even when a child is trying to argue for itself before some kind of punishment, their appeal is to some sense of justice. They'll say, I didn't mean to. They'll say, she did it first. He made me do it. What are they doing? They're arguing on some terms and some desire that, put the world right, dad. Put the world right, mom, because this is not just, and we need to, let's approach this in a just way. It's a part of our nature. It's how God's made us. It's a reflection that we're made in the image of God. It tells us that deep inside of us, there is, this pulse beat, or this desire, or this longing, that everything would be made right and that justice would prevail. God came to Abraham in the book of Genesis, and God revealed to Abraham that he was going to judge the cities on the plain. He was going to wipe out all of Sodom and He was going to wipe out all of Gomorrah. And Abraham, in this kind of intimate relationship he had with God, where God was revealing to him what was happening. Abraham doesn't take this intimate relationship as an opportunity for him to pray for himself. Instead of all things, Abraham prays for Sodom and Gomorrah. God reveals that he's taking Abraham into his confidence, and he's got this close relationship. And what a righteous response on Abraham's part. Instead of saying, well, I got some blessings I want you to give me. I got some provisions I want to have for myself. I'm kind of tired of living in tents. Instead, he prays for the people in the city of the plain, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he starts praying that God would rescue and deliver the city from his destruction. And as he prays, ultimately in his prayers, he, in this contest he has in prayer, he, he's able to provoke God to promise to spare the cities on the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah if there are but ten righteous individuals in those cities. It's kind of interesting, but that's all it was required to start a, a house of worship or a synagogue of worship in the Jewish tradition with ten righteous men. That's how it began. There would be the establishment of a community of righteousness in the city. But as we learn, God will destroy the city because there's not ten righteous individuals in that city. But listen in Genesis 18:25 to how Abraham argues for this. Abraham says, Far be it for you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. God, that's not righteous. That's not just. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God, are you not going to do the right thing? And of course, the answer to that question to Abraham is yes. The judge of all the earth shall do what is right. But Abraham's prayer and the echo of his prayer reveals this deep desire that is actually somewhat embedded in the heart of every person. A desire that the world would be just and right. Of course, when individuals, sinful individuals, take it into their hands to impose justice and righteousness, they actually just impose their unrighteous judgment on the earth. They usually cause more havoc and more problems than they do good when they don't wait upon God, when they impose their own ideas and understanding what's right and what's just. Even those impulses and those actions express that there's something in us that longs that everything would be set right it's in a sense the great and final desire of life it's not a desire for happiness it's not a desire for peace it's not a desire for blessing and from some state of uninterrupted love all of these will be wonderfully and fully met when we get to heaven but tied into all these things is a deep abiding desire for balance for justice For what is right to be done something of our very selves would be frustrated it would nag us until justice was met we want justice that's interesting isn't it even the person who might want to live forever would find out that it would be a living hell if he lived in a place where justice was not being applied and established it's the great longing of the human heart that the judge of all the earth would do right the book of Revelation reveals to us the song of the saints. It's the song of the Lamb that we're going to sing before God and exalting before Him in heaven. It's found in Revelation chapter 15. And let me read to you verses 3 and 4 to give you the heart, the center point from which this exaltation and song rise. Think about it. In heaven, we're going to be exalting God and we're going to be praising Him. And, and here is you might the center point of what God has done that we're going to rally around. It says this. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just... And true are your ways, O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been made manifest. Just and true are your ways. Your judgment, your perfect righteous judgment has been made manifest. That's going to be the song of praise that rises up from us when we get to heaven one day. We want it. We desire it. We long for it. Even the sinful man knows deep inside that that's what he wants of everything else. Justice. Righteousness to prevail. Here's a third thing. We should marvel that God wants us to know that he has done and does and will do what is right and just. We should marvel that God wants us to know that what he has done and will do And does is just. Here's our passage. In verse 25. To prove his righteousness. To demonstrate his righteousness. In verse 26. To prove or demonstrate his righteousness. Who is he demonstrating this to? Who is he proving this to? God acts to prove or demonstrate. That he is just with us. To us. He wants me to know. And you to know. That all he's done is just and true and right. And this reveals something about God's view of humanity. It reveals something about God's view of you. God holds you sinful as you are. God holds us sinful as we are. God holds all people sinful as they are in high regard, an amazing regard. God honors the image, His image in which we have all been made. God is committed at the end, above all things, in displaying before us the complete justice and righteousness of His sovereign ways. He wants us to know that. Isn't that rather profound? Isn't that incredibly awesome? I don't know how to actually again, there are things that I discover in Scripture that I don't know exactly how to get my mind around. I don't want to exalt myself too high, but you know, this tells me that because of my sin, because of what I am I sin, I cannot think too low of myself. But because I'm made in the image of God, I can't think too high of myself either. God is revealing something wonderful about the way he's made us. And he's going to honor it. And he's going to demonstrate and prove to us he puts it upon himself. The all-powerful almighty God puts it upon himself to prove and demonstrate to us, we, us, that he's righteous and just. Tread lightly, but what an awesome thought. What a humbling thought, and yet at the same time, what an exalting thought! Why you're important to God? Here is the last point. Here, take a little bit more time with this. The cross forth reveals God's justice in God's forbearing or suspending or delaying His full punishment upon sin. The cross of God, Christ reveals God's justice in His righteousness in forbearing or suspending. Or delaying his full punishment upon sin? You know, one of the common questions that people ask in our day and age is, why does God allow terrible things to happen? Why do these horrible things that we see in our society taking place? Why is God letting that happen? Here's a more difficult question to answer. It's if you understand what the Bible reveals to be true about our natures. If you read Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 18, in which we're described as, being encased with the perfume of a rotting grave coming out from us and having feet that are swift to shed blood and that misery and destruction is in our ways and that there's none righteous, no, not one, that our impulse is an impulse away from God and our impulse is an impulse into violence and destruction. When you understand what man is made of in and of himself because of his sin, because of his fallen nature, the question is not why do these things happen? The question is why don't they happen all the time? The question is, why does these things take place? But it's, why hasn't the hammer of God's complete and utter justice fallen? And brought an end to all of this? And stopped it? Banished all this criminal behavior and all these criminals into the just place of punishment that he set aside? Why is it being delayed? Why is it happening and why is it being suppressed? We might understand that Right now, the Bible refers to the Holy Spirit. I believe it is. It's in 1 Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians. And we'll have to go look up the address later in your scripture. But it talks about a restrainer that is restraining evil. And that there's coming a time when that restrainer in the history of mankind will be taken out of the way. And at that moment when that restraint is pulled out of the way, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And the earth will catapult into a time of complete destruction where in a period of three and a half years, one half of the world's population is destroyed. But what happened? God withholds his hand of restraint. But right now he's restraining it. Why? Why is he restraining? Why isn't he letting us and just stepping aside and letting us completely uninhibited act out the primal sinfulness and fallenness of our human natures? Well, what this passage tells us is that God has delayed the full expression of his justice. That's the word forbearance there that God has forbared or is held back that full expression of his justice and that this was in itself a righteous thing for God to do. It's not that God won't punish sin. It's not that God won't deal in perfect and complete judgment at the end of the age, but that God has held back the full unleashing of that justice. He's delayed or he's forbared in the implementation of his justice against our sins for a purpose. And the reason he's done it is a just reason as well. And so let's Think of this in two different ways. So the nation of Israel was taught that if they sinned, they would come to the temple and they'd bring a sacrifice and they'd offer a bull or they'd offer a goat or they'd offer a lamb or they'd offer a dove as some kind of sacrifice for their sins. The book of Hebrews in chapter 10 verse 4 tells us that they knew and we should know that the blood of bulls and goats don't take away sins. But that's what God told them to do. Bring these offerings. And as they brought these offerings What they were being taught was an ultimate sacrifice has to be made. An ultimate punishment has to be brought down upon your sins. And God is going to provide the sacrifice that will stand in your place for your sins. And so by faith, you come to God acknowledging your sins, acknowledging that punishment is deserved, acknowledging that God should exact his punishment upon you. But you ask God to mercifully continue to fulfill his righteousness and his judgment But to lay it upon another being or another object. And they didn't know who that was. They didn't know what that sacrifice was going to be. But they looked in anticipation for the time when God would. As Abraham had told his son Isaac. When God would provide himself a sacrifice. When God would give the ultimate sacrifice for their sins. And so in the meantime. God withheld and he kept back the full expression of his judgment. Upon the sinning nation of Israel. And the people that were coming to the temple. He didn't enact his judgments upon them. As instead they laid their hands upon the bull. Or as they laid their hands upon the goat. Or the lamb. Or they brought the blood of the dove. To be offered up in sacrifice. If God were simply saying. I'm not going to punish these things. We're just going to overlook it this time. Then God would be lax. And God would be winking at sin. And God would be turning a blind eye to righteousness. And in that way God would be unjust. And God would be unrighteous. But that's not what God was doing. God was waiting to prove his righteousness in forgiving them and in making them righteous by their faith that they were placing in him for that provision. And he proved his righteousness at the cross. Because at the cross of Jesus Christ, he allowed the full weight of all that judgment of sin that the nation of Israel was demonstrating they deserved when they brought their sacrifices. He allowed the full weight of that judgment. To fall on Jesus. And Jesus took the punishment. For their sins. And Jesus suffered. And God forbear. Fulfilling or carrying out his judgment. On the people of Israel as they came. Because he had determined to wait. Until he would lay out the full measure. Of his judgment upon sin. Upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In their place. That's how God can be just. That's how God forbears. Not just Israel. Let me share with you the rest of the world. God was not only in the Old Testament forbearing with Israel, but he was, and he is today, forbearing with all those in all of world history. Since Adam and Eve fell in sin, God has begun a work of, he knows sin and he knows the punishment he deserves. But God immediately began to forbear himself and restrain himself and suspend and delay the final judgment that we deserve. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, God had told them that the day that they sinned, they would surely die. And there were tremendous judgments that would go along with it. But if you take your Bibles, here's an assignment for you. Go to Genesis chapter 3 and read verses 14 through 24. And there in Genesis 3, 14 through 24 is the curse that God set upon Adam and Eve and their children because of their sins. And what you'll discover in this curse is it's got a lot of blessings in it. And it's got a lot of hope in it. And it's got a lot of promises in it. And when God even banished them from the Garden of Eden, we discovered there was a reason and purpose for that that was actually merciful and gracious and kind. And as they went out from the garden, they went out, obviously it was a terrible thing, but they went out with some sense of hope. And so God does things like this in the curse. He promises that ultimate justice will come upon Satan who bought them into deception and deceived them. He promises that as Satan works to bring ruin and misery in the world that God was going to usurp all of Satan's efforts. He says the serpent will crawl on his belly and God was basically saying, listen, as a part of this, Satan, I'm going to make you crawl on your belly. Everything that you do to bring destruction and harm, I'm going to turn it for my redemptive purpose. I'm sovereignly going to make you crawl on your belly. And then God turns the woman and he promises to the woman that even though she'll have pain in childbirth, that it's her seed that will rise up and crush this serpent's head. And so he promises from the generation of human beings a Savior will rise up to destroy Satan and destroy all of his plans. And so what he did was he put in the heart of every home a hope that your children in the next generation might repeal something of the decay and some of the result of sin and death that have come upon your lives. So when your children are born, even when they're born into fallen worlds and difficult worlds, you rejoice. Rise. here's a chance again for goodness to prevail and it's a hope that God put in the human nature in the curse and then he cursed the ground he said you know Adam you're gonna have to work by the sweat of your brow because the earth is going to bring back thorns but God gave Adam a place of productivity and usefulness and a place even by labor to bring provision to his home and family and to steward the creation that God has given him and what wonderful gifts were those and are those? There's something about working and laboring and sweating even. You come home from that. I remember, you know, as a young man, I, I didn't do very much. I, you know, I had to clean my room every Saturday. I muttered if I had to go out in the pasture and scoop up horse patties or whatever it was because it didn't seem fair, but you know, you did the same. It wasn't very much. Finally, you come to an age where you have to provide for yourself and you've got to work hard and you labor all day. And one of the first jobs I had that was hard labor was with my brother-in-law. We would cut sod all day long and then we'd go in the evening and lay sod. And you'd be dirty and you'd be filthy and you'd be bone tired. And it felt good. (laughs) You had done something and you had labored through something and you had earned God in the curse. Something of that sense of meaning and accomplishment and provision to Adam to provide for his family. God delays final judgment in the curse. Not only that, God protects them from becoming sealed in their judgment because he drives them out from the garden and he puts a guard over the tree of life lest they eat of the tree of life and somehow be set and settled forever in their rebellion and their fallen natures. That was gracious. It's very gracious of God. The curse demonstrates that immediately upon man's sin, God began to forbear or suspend the full judgment of that sin. Why? How come? Well, because man even sinned, before he even sinned, the Bible tells us of the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world. The Bible reveals to us that God already was planning a way of redemption for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And God withheld and does withheld to this day the full expressions of his judgment in hope and in lieu of individuals coming to that cross and that place where their sins are dealt with fully in Jesus Christ. Today, people are living under the curse of But under that curse, they're enjoying great blessings in their relationships and with their children and in their careers and in their enjoyment of the good things that God has provided for them. All this was made available to them because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Whether a person knows it or not, every good thing that they experience in life has been purchased for them by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every possible enjoyment of every part of life, every blessing that they enjoy. It comes to them by way of the cross because the cross allows God to forbear or withhold his final judgment as he waits for people. And he gives individuals the opportunity to find that judgment resting by faith in Jesus Christ and his suffering for them at the cross so that it doesn't have to fall upon them. That's God's grace. That's God's mercy. That's what the cross does for us. Now, if that offering goes unaccepted if it goes unclaimed by repentance and faith, then this gracious delay itself will speak out on judgment against them because they've abused it. But in all of this, God is showing that he's righteous and he's just as he waits for the full influx of those elect and believing to receive the provision he has for them at the cross. He remains just. And during this time in which he remains just, he's justifying those who have faith in him. He's done everything just. And as even as he forbears. He remains just. And he continues to pour out his justifying power. And saving power upon those. Who believe upon him. Here's an application for ourselves. Very quickly. Believers. The just forbearance of God. In forbearance to punish. Or withholding his punishment. The righteousness of God. In giving us a savior. Who would bear our punishment. Has brought to us. Eternal, everlasting life. It's brought to us forgiveness and a lasting, enduring hope. It's brought to us a personal relationship with God that shall never be interrupted. We should measure everything that we experience of good by way of the cross. Our family, our work, our laughter, our wealth, our health, all of it in some wonderful way was purchased for us In the atonement of Jesus Christ. But don't hold on to any of that too tightly. Hold on to the cross tightly. Hold on to the one who bought it and brought it to you. And next, view everyone else in light of that cross. View what they're experiencing. View what's happening in life in light of that cross. You see that person you're envying because, you know, he's successful. The psalmist talks about in Psalm 73. He sees the individual that seems to be successful, and yet he's evil, and he's Wicked and he's scoffing at God. And you say, oh, wait, wait. He's enjoying the fruit of what Jesus bought for him at the cross. Forbearance, a delay, a suspension of judgment. But judgment's coming. It's only been suspended. That's forbearing. It doesn't mean dismissing or removing judgment for an individual. It means God withholds it. In lieu of an opportunity for them to turn and put faith in him. I would say this to the believer as well. Don't despair of justice. Don't despair of justice. Because today we live in a day of mercy. What God allows to take place. That seems unjust. God's provision and God's allowing. Because you really don't want God. To bring all of his justice now. You know. We have these ministries we call. Social justice ministries. And the church has made much about. Bringing and doing justice ministries in places. And I would suggest that we really don't want to be the heralds of justice in our world. We want to be the heralds of mercy and grace. It'll look the same, but it'll be a recognition that this is tis mercy all. God is being merciful as he forbears in his justice and in his judgment upon the world as he forbear with us until we put our faith in him. So, don't despair of justice. Recognize that today is a day of, of Mercy. And that God will finalize justice one day. But even now it's fully expressed in the cross of Jesus Christ. What does justice look like? Well, look at the cross. That's what it looks like. Here's what I'd say to the person who's yet to believe in Jesus Christ. For the believer, the forbearance of God has purchased for us in faith in Jesus Christ eternal life. But for the unbeliever, the forbearance of God has bought for them time. A limited number of blessings in order to bring them to repentance. So I would say this, everything that you have that is good comes to you by way of the cross. And you should look at it the way and see it that way. You should see that all these things have been God's merciful and gracious provision. You didn't deserve, you've yet to get what you deserve and you're getting now what you don't deserve because God is forbearing his judgment upon your life because out ahead of you looms a cross. In which Christ would take all of the punishment and everything you deserve upon himself and has. And if you will put faith in him, you'd be washed and you can be cleansed. But if you cling to these things and you think that these are your own properties and your own accomplishment, just recognize something. God in his forbearance is giving you a chance. God, in a sense, is giving you hope. But your chance and your hope are fading. If you don't turn to him and don't believe in him, chance and your hope will be lost altogether for you. You've been given time, but your time is running out. For you, God is multiplying his goodness to you, but the multiplication of his goodness upon your life, if you don't let it turn you to him, will also multiply upon you his condemnation and will increase his judgment on your life. So don't boast over what you've acquired. It was all bought for you with the blood of Jesus Christ. That moment, that opportunity experience it was delivered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now give to him what Jesus is seeking above all else. Yourself. Believe in him and trust in him and receive his forgiveness and cleansing. And God will righteously prove his righteousness to you. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are in awe that. These impulses and instincts within us, even distorted, twisted as they are, oftentimes towards evil. Something beneath it is a reflection that we were made in your image. And it reveals to us the deep, the deep penetrating needs of the human life that cannot and have not been met any measure that men have tried to produce on their own. And by any philosophy that man has come up with. The cross of Jesus Christ. The offering of our Savior for our sins. Answers every deep longing of the human heart. It fits with the human nature that you made us with. It solves all of these complex problems. It answers the conundrums of existence. At the cross. Because there you Prove your absolute righteousness. You do all things good and right. Even to those who have fallen and rebelled against you. We praise you for that. Questions remain. Problems of pain and suffering still come against us. A sense of loss unmet still meets us. Thank you for the promise that the day will prove all these things and we'll see how good and glorious and wonderful you were in all your actions because of the lamb that was slain for us and for our sins. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.